Welcome to the 10th episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast, diversity as an essential component of accountability. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to a friend and colleague, Cherie Blair QC. Over the next 40 minutes or so, Cherie will take us through an extraordinary journey from her working class upbringing in Liverpool, being the first member of her family to go to university, studying law at the London School of Economics, where she graduated with a first class degree. In 1995, she became Queen's Counsel, and in 2000, she became a founding member of Matrix Chambers. In 2011, she founded Omnia Strategy, a pioneering international law firm that provides strategic counsel to governments, corporates, and private clients. Cherie has actively campaigned for human rights and equality for women. She's closely involved with a number of charities around the world with a special emphasis on those working with women, children, and the transformative power of education. In 2008, she founded the Cherie Blair Foundation for Women, which partners with global organizations to support women entrepreneurs in the developing world. It is my pleasure to welcome Cherie to the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Cherie, first of all, thank you very much for joining us on the Guernica Accountability Podcast. It's my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'd like to start by asking, which I'm sure many people ask you, first of all, why did you seek a career at the bar? And what would you say was your main inspiration for doing so? Well, to some extent, I think I would say that I fell into the law. Um, I came from a pretty working class um, home in, in Liverpool. I certainly didn't know any lawyers or anyone who was a lawyer. Uh, and I was very conscious that I was the first person in my family to stay on at school after the age of 16. And so when I was looking to go to university, I felt I wanted to do something that would be worth the investment that my family was making in that. Not in the sense that they paid any money because I was lucky enough to get a full grant and my fees all paid, but in the sense of I wasn't earning any money and therefore wasn't contributing to the family pool. So I wanted to do something practical. As much as I loved history, I thought studying history when I really didn't want to be a teacher wasn't the best thing to do. And my then boyfriend's mother said to me, why don't you try law? Because I was good at debating and argumentative, which I still am. Uh, and so I thought, well, why not? Um, Part of that, I think, was also inspired by the by Rose Halbron QC, who herself uh, came from Liverpool, uh, and she was famous in Liverpool uh, as one of their successful daughters. She was the first woman, uh, along with Helena uh, Normington, to become a QC in 1949. Uh, she was the first woman to defend someone in a death penalty case. She was the first, uh, she was so many firsts. Uh, and my grandmother was a great admirer of Rose Halbron. And so I was aware of her and I kind of thought if one girl from Liverpool can make it in the law, maybe this girl from Liverpool could too. So that's how it happened. I really didn't know 
what it would entail or what it would be like, but it turned out uh, when I got to the LSE to read law that actually, A, I enjoyed it, and B, I seemed to be pretty good at it. Well, I, I can certainly uh, agree with you on the argumentative point, having <laughs> worked with you over a number of years. Um, and, it's, and it's funny, I was actually looking at um, Rose Helburn last night, um, not knowing very much about her, but knowing that you were going to be coming on um, and just myself reading about her background, how she was um, the first female recorder um, in Burnley. And so I thought it was quite apt that, that you mentioned her um, as an inspiration. Um, of course, the other thing about her, you know, was that she was also a mother and a working mother, which given, you know, as I say, she became a QC in 1949 and the circumstances then, and given that her husband was a doctor and uh, there weren't many wives of doctors who were had a demanding career themselves. So I think that also made her interesting. She was also incredibly glamorous looking. I was lucky enough to appear in front of her when she was sitting in the family division. Um, and uh, even then, she was very glamorous. She used to have a blue rinse hair, which people don't know about these days, but um, was much more common back in the 1970s. Um, so there were so many things that, of her about her that made her interesting and different. Well, one of the things that I was looking at um, preparing for this uh, when I came across her was were the the statistics of uh, women entering the profession and, and, and women succeeding in the profession. And I guess um, when when you first came to the bar, and I hope you don't mind me saying so. Um, A long in, time ago. <laughs> 1976. Um, I mean, it, it must have been uh, a fairly daunting prospect for you even even then. Do you know, I don't, the, the, the extraordinary thing is, I don't think I was really aware of it. When I went to, to LSE, of course, there were, far fewer women than men in the in our my cohort but there wasn't only a handful of women there were uh, enough women not the majority that, that we have now um, and then going into then to do my bar finals there were even fewer women when I was called to the bar in 1976 I think there were like 50 to 60 men I can't remember exactly now and 10 women so we were definitely in a, in a minority, and it turned out really it was the first year, that 1976, that the number of women being called to the bar went into double figures, above 10%, in other words. Now, I didn't really uh, appreciate that, uh, except that during my pupillage, though there were two women tenants in chambers, I never actually saw a woman plead a case in court during that time. Um, all the people I saw in court, all the uh, people you might model yourselves on, tended to be men. Well, which is quite extraordinary. Now, I guess coming from the background that you have come from, um, which you, you've spoken about quite a bit before, um, you've, you have, I suppose, taken upon yourself to, to help people um, from different backgrounds to um, to succeed. Um, I don't know if you can recall, but um, many years ago, when I first moved to Bosnia, which was my, uh, I suppose, my introduction um, to an international practice, um, you were one of the first people to help me. Um, and you continue to do that, and you continue to be an inspiration for, for young lawyers from different backgrounds, particularly female lawyers, but lawyers from aspiring lawyers from different backgrounds trying to break into what appears to many to be a fairly closed practice. I mean, what, what 
motivates you to do that? Well, I think partly my own background. Um, obviously, as I said, I came to some extent out of ignorance <laughs> to the bar, not appreciating that this was a particular problem because uh, I suppose the nuns had always told us in my grammar school, once I passed the 11 plus and went to grammar school, that if we worked hard, we could get anywhere. Um, and it was really only when I went to the bar that I realized that just passing exams and doing well ex at exams wasn't enough. And of course, when I finished my pupillage, um, my pupil master did say to me, well, Sheree, there's only one spot here, really, and there's one of... There's a boy and there's a girl candidate, so obviously we're going to go for the boy. Um, so I, I suppose those experience, the boy, of course, was at that time my rival, but he became my husband, Tony Blair. And of course, the, the reality is he left the bar after seven years and never returned. And I'm 45 years on, I'm still practicing. So it, it shows that assumptions you make about people based on stereotyping uh, don't always lead to the right result. <laughs> So I think it, it, it's always been because of that that I've always been happy to help, if I can, people from different backgrounds. Uh, I'm very conscious, for example, I'm often asked to speak at schools and I do speak to sixth forms and things. Mostly I speak to um, state schools. Uh, I have occasionally spoken because friends have asked me to, to uh, private school sixth forms and I always notice the difference. When I go to a, a, a private school and talk to them about the law, they don't ask me what's the difference between a barrister and a solicitor, as they would in, in state schools, because they already know. Uh, and, and they ask me, you know, oh, what's the best way of getting a pupillage? Whereas I'm more likely to be asked in a, in a, in a state school, what is a pupillage? Um, and... Uh, I think that it really matters that the law is diverse and is open to people from different backgrounds. Uh, and unless we actively make sure that it's accessible to people from different backgrounds, we shouldn't just assume that somehow by magic they will be able to break through. Not because there are external or overt barriers, but because of these social, cultural just knowing how the system works, barriers to people who, like me, and you know, before they came into the law, never met a lawyer before. And that's whether you're female, male, from minority ethnic group, or um, whatever. I think that's right. And I think certainly it's something that I've encountered um, since being at the bar, which is now 20 years. And obviously there, there have been quite significant changes over, the, over those 20 years. But I do think that the, the different types of state school um, private education um, is, is or, or does provide a greater preparation for entering a profession such as this. So I think that um, trying to, to give the opportunity to, to those that are not from a traditional background is very important, as you say, to, to ensure that there is diversity in in the profession I mean something which has has been seriously lacking and and which only now is really starting to be properly addressed absolutely well by no means there uh, at all it's, it's a lot better that's for sure um, but um, it's still by no means um, open to everyone and I think 
particularly the costs of qualifying, um, fall more, much more heavily on those who don't have private means or parental means to support them. And uh, I was very lucky in my day, as I said, I, I got a full grant to go to university. And actually, at that time, Lancashire County Council paid for me to do my bar finals as well. Today, virtually everybody who goes uh, into the profession will have some kind of debt, either from their university fees or from the fees uh, to qualify for the next professional stage of the training. Yeah, and and the costs are um, increasing year year on. I mean, we, we've we've just finished interviewing uh, pupils for uh, Guernica for this year and next year, uh, and and some of the some of the stories about the the cost of qualifying now, and then the prospect of going into pupillage for for at least twelve months um, is of course a barrier. And so I think we're seeing more people actually going into a law firm rather than coming to independent practice because it is becoming increasingly uh, an increasingly unstable um, profession to be in. So, uh, yeah, I agree. A lot I think that is, that is a difficulty. I mean, I welcome the fact that they are trying to slimline and uh, provide uh, more economical um, ways of qualifying. Um, and I... I see, for example, that in the solicitor's profession, you can. there's also the apprenticeship route that now happens. I think we could do more in the bar to work out whether we could do some form of apprenticeship training as well. But the problem, of course, because the bar is made up of self-employed individuals, it's much harder to do that than in a structure which is based on um, a, a partnership or a, co or a company where, um, where people share profits as well as in, um, as well as expenses, whereas, of course, self-employed barristers share expenses but not profits, and therefore the incentive to keep the expenses down um, and not necessarily invest in the, the future generations is greater. I'd like to come back to your practice at Omnia in a moment, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about Certainly, your your career at the bar, um, there was a, a great deal of emphasis on on discrimination, particularly employment discrimination. Um, certainly, where you made a name for yourself at the bar, and also within within the realms of gender gender equality, was it a conscious decision to move into that kind of work, or, or was that like the law that you you sort of more fell into it rather than um, any conscious decision? Uh, I think it was more of a conscious decision. At the LSC, we studied law as, as a social science and not just as a way of getting a professional qualification. And so I chose to do what was then called labor law, um, as well as uh, human rights law, as it, as it happens. And I even did tribal law. So I, I, I did quite a, an interesting uh, combination. Um, and I, when I looked to go to the bar, um, I wanted to do employment law because it fitted in, if you like, with my own uh, interest in politics, um, which I joined the Labour Party when I was 16, so I was interested in, in, in that and um, obviously had seen the development uh, of the uh, Heath government then followed by the Wilson governments, where there was quite a lot of emphasis on industrial relations and employment rights, as well as improvements to discrimination law. Um, so that was what I tried to um, 
find somewhere where I could continue my academic interest into practice. And that's how I came to study with Alexander Irvin. But at those, in those days, there weren't chambers as such associated with doing employment law. It was just individual barristers. Um, and I was very lucky that even though I wasn't taken on by Derry, he continued to, to use me as a, as a devil, uh, as someone who would help him with his work. After I moved to new chambers, I moved to Five Essex Court, then New Court Chambers, where Freddie Reynolds, then a junior barrister, but became a QC, also did a lot of trade union work and, and employment work. And I was able, therefore, to combine employment law within a much more general common law practice. So when I started, I was in the Crown Court. I would do personal injury cases. I would do uh, family law cases. Um, in fact, I continued to do family law cases right up until the 1990s, though I stopped doing criminal cases by the mid-80s and started to um, specialize more. Um, and then during the 80s, I was able to move more into public law, partly because of the discrimination law and the European law that I'd done as a result of that, and partly because I often used to work for local authorities and they, um, they don't only have employment problems, they also have public law problems, and that's how I was able to develop that public law side of my practice. Increasingly, we see chambers becoming more more specialised and fewer chambers having what we would call a general common law practice. Looking at the early stages of your career, do you think that was a positive thing to, to develop your practice in that way? Or do you think it is better to have a specialism quite early on? I think I certainly benefited from... Um, particularly a wide range of advocacy experience. But that just wasn't unique to me. Um, I think of my brother-in-law who was in a commercial set of chambers uh, and yet still as a, as a beginning barrister, he would do a little bit of probably road traffic events, crime, and um, certainly a little bit of tort, you know, of uh, running down personal injury actions, whilst at the same time, doing uh, cases in the county court, collecting debts for banks and gradually building up what turned out to be an international banking law practice, uh, which led him in the end to preside over the commercial court. Chambers as a whole at that time were much more generalized. And it was very good in relation to advocacy experience. You know, you literally would be thrown in at the deep end in a court where the judges were not necessarily very kind to young advocates and you had to sink or swim. And uh, that was a great, great training, not just in making arguments, but also in cross-examining witnesses and indeed leading witnesses in chief. How possible it is to do that today, I think is a bit more difficult because today, almost inevitably, there is more specialization. But I do think it's one, one of the advantages of the bar that you can have a broader, broader experience, I think, um, even if it is within a specialism. So, you know, maybe you might never do any crime, but you might do civil or you might never do any civil, if, but you do crime. But I still think there is potential for broader experience, um, which is a good thing. 
I think so too. And I think certainly with cuts, um, certainly the cuts that we've seen um, to legal aid in different areas, in different practices, I think it is, barristers are having to be uh, more open to different areas of practice now um, in order to, to, to survive. And so I think the, the, the very early specialization um, can, can be detrimental to that. And so I think that the, certainly the, the, the system that, that you were subjected to, many people were subjected to um, earlier on, um, was a much better grounding and like you say, you're, you're thrown in the deep end. You're literally thrown into the magistrate's court, the county court, to, to deal with a variety of different matters. And you're actually in court dealing with witnesses, dealing with advocacy at a, at a very early stage. And I think that there is a lot less of that now, um, which, which will have an impact on the profession, um, no doubt. I agree. And I think that, um, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to be confident. One of the... One of the reasons for having the bar is to have people who are specialized advocates. And to some extent, advocacy is a skill that doesn't necessarily depend on the uh, context in which you're using that advocacy. Um, And if you're too scared to try a, a different area and don't have confidence in your ability as a lawyer to understand the law and communicate it to others, uh, I think you, you can miss out a great deal. I think one of the joys uh, of the practices I have had is that I, I have been able to take it in different directions across that 40 years of, uh, of careers. Um, and as a result, you know, I have been very, very lucky, I think. Now, one of the things that you said at the beginning was that obviously there there have been a lot of changes in terms of diversity, but obviously uh, a lot needs to be done. Now, as a, a strong woman at the bar, obviously a lot has changed since 1976, but we now have much higher numbers of, of women QCs. We have high numbers of women judges sitting in, sitting in the high court and higher. How much more needs to be done? I mean, are we doing enough? And really, do we need to be doing it much better? Oh, I think there's no doubt about that, that we do need to do more and do it better. Though we do speak in the context of today, uh, we see a second woman joining the, the Supreme Court, um, which, is, which is good because uh, after the retirement of Brenda Hale, of course, it went down to one woman on the Supreme Court. And so to, uh, to have two is good. Um, and you're right, we do have more women uh, in all levels of the court system, but they're still very much in, in, in the minority and more needs to be done, um, not just as a sort of tokenism, but to ensure that the bench ha- reflects the experience and the makeup of our society. You know, the law is nothing if it is not relevant to an understanding of uh, the realities of people's lives and therefore different experiences are really important in informing the development uh, of the law. What do we do about that? Um, well, I think it's it's perfectly clear, thanks to, to the reforms we have, that it is, it is not tolerated uh, these days to overtly discriminate against women or um, minority groups of, of of one kind or another, 
Um, but the cultural changes are, are, are definitely, uh, the culture is definitely changing. I don't think anyone would today say, well, we've only got one place, so obviously it must go to the boy. Um, uh, but uh, there's still uh, more change that could happen. Uh, my main concern, I think, about what is this question of the cost and how do we make sure that we're, you know, we're not really um, getting diversity if we just replace a load of posh boys with a load of posh girls? <laughs> and but how do we, how do we as a as, as a bar do that when, as I say, you have a profession that's made up of self-employed people, uh, and you don't have the the discipline or the ability that you do have in partnerships or. Uh, corporations to say this is our policy and this is how we're going to spend our money because we don't have our money in that sense it's my money <laughs> um, and so I think that is that's always been the challenge to the bar and it's particularly a challenge in how we make our training accessible and affordable um, and I think as a profession we need to do more about about that. I mentioned already about apprenticeships. You can see how the solicitor's profession has started taking up apprenticeships, which has allowed, which do allow people to qualify as paralegals, as um, uh, legal executives and as solicitors at the same time um, working and earning a living and therefore minimizing their debt. The, you know, that is not so far been possible in in the bar. Um, and maybe we should be thinking about how we could make that possible. And would you say that that was one of the driving factors for you to to set up Omnia? Uh, one of the driving factors, yes, I, I suppose in the sense of being able to uh, try and practice a little bit more about what I what I preached uh, about how how we organise how I organize my own legal practice within the context of a bigger structure. Um, it was also part of the, the reason we set up at the time, we wanted to do something dif differently when we set up Matrix as well. And what I learned, I think, at my time at Matrix is uh, we could do things and did do things somewhat differently um, at Matrix, but at the end of the day, uh, particularly by then when I was moving into international law, that the structure of the self-employed barrister, um, it's quite hard to make that work, particularly when you're bidding for international work, where, where that's not very much well understood, and where often when you're trying to get the work, you're competing directly with solicitors and people want to see the person they're working with. And the bar is a referral profession. Um, it's harder for that to happen. You're basically dependent on uh, the solicitors who are getting the work for you. I think that's right. And I think that certainly that was one of the driving factors um, for us to create Guernica as a, as a non-traditional chambers. Um, and I think uh, over time, we are moving towards the same, the same kind of model of what Omnia is now. Um, so I think Certainly, that there, there is that. I mean, you mentioned. Um, I think Matrix. we're seeing it. You're absolutely right with Guernica, but I think we're also seeing it now. Others are looking at 
are more of an idea that there's an entity which is bigger than the sum of its parts? I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, we're looking at your career path from, and you mentioned Matrix, which, again, was the, the first of its kind when it was set up. And I suppose some people could could call you an innovative trendsetter of the bar, that you had Matrix that was set up, then you moved on to Omnia, what you have now. I mean, I'm in, interested to, to, to hear about the, the path that took you to Matrix, then Omnia, but also to, to, to hear what you think is next. I think that, um, as well, of course, as my role is, uh, as a lawyer, I also, of course, have my foundation, which works with women entrepreneurs in low-middle-income countries. And it's only really since I've started thinking more about entrepreneurship that I've, I've realized I must be a bit of an entrepreneur myself. <laughs> Um, and of course, all self-employed professionals are uh, small business owners, the business being themselves. But I've always been quite interested too in the in 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 the the practice of law, how we make it work. Before we set up Matrix, I was also quite quite involved. I was the first chair of the Bar IT Committee, and the idea of how technology can enable us to change the way we practice. Uh, enable us to be much more flexible in our working. These these are the things that are have always fascinated me. I suppose I just like trying new things, perhaps. <laughs> and have you thought of what post Omnia will be, or or is Omnia your your focus at the moment? I think Omnia is is my focus at the moment because I still see a, a lot of potential there for for what we. Um, what we could do, what we could achieve, how we could uh, do things differently. Um, I mean, I think it's very exciting in the law at the moment and whatever else has come out of this pandemic, there's been a step change, I think, in the way we understand how we can do things differently. Um, And though um, (laughs) back-to-back Zoom meetings are exhausting and uh, there are disadvantages in in remote hearings. I also can see that there's a lot of advantages in terms of diminishing the costs and in the terms of flexibility and accessibility. Uh, and I can see a lot more developments uh, along those lines. I'm not saying that <laughs> uh, we're going to abolish in-person hearings uh, and that whole, I mean, I still love that whole cop courtroom drama there is something about that moment before a trial or a hearing or a case in the appeal court starts where you know everyone sort of takes a pause and a deep breath and then off you go which is um very exciting it is i i was just asked just a few days ago um by one of our prospective pupils as you know when when does that that feeling of uh, exhilaration and the nerves right before a trial, um, when does that go away? Never. Never. (laughs) Well, one of the other things that obviously you've put a great deal of your time and and emotion into is the the charity work that you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, in particular, Bangladesh, which has been quite an important part um, uh, of your life over the last few years in empowering Young young women and girls in in the field of education in Bangladesh. How did you get into that? I mean, what prompted that? In Bangladesh, in particular, um, 
it again was a series of coincidences, I think. I mean, Bangladesh, I've been involved in now since the early um, noughties. And uh, it's, a com- it's been a combination of all of my interests, actually. Firstly, a combina- I-, I got into it because I, uh, as, a, as a lawyer, because I was asked to join the, the legal team of Sheikh Hasina when uh, she was detained in, in prison. And I went over. Um, I was part, partly it's to do with my, the relationship the Bangladeshi community has with the Labour Party and um, my, my contacts within that community because of that. So it's another area of my interest. And then um, when I started uh, my own foundation, uh, we certainly done projects with women entrepreneurs uh, in Bangladesh. And as you mentioned, I was first a patron and have been now since 2010 the first chancellor of the Asian University uh, for Women, which is a a liberal arts, um, based on American liberal arts colleges. The degree comes from that that background based in Chittagong in Bangladesh for students, most of whom are on full scholarships from across the Asian region, including places like Afghanistan, Bhutan. Uh, We have uh, a number of girls from the Rohingya camps um, and indeed um, just two years ago now I went out to Cox's Bazaar when I was visiting the Asian University for Women and met with, we had over 50 of our graduates who were working with various UN agencies in the camp and uh, went round and, and saw that. So I've got a great interest in all that happens in Cox Bazaar, what's happening with the, the, the Rohingyas. Um, it's, it's, as I say, there's, it's, we're so lucky as lawyers that the opportunities that can come our way and uh, I'm a great believer in never saying no and seizing those opportunities and see where it takes you. Absolutely. I think, that's certainly one of the um, one of the characteristics that that I admire uh, most in you, which I think is sadly missing from from many at the bar to 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 look at things in that way. Um, and and obviously we've had very different experiences of Bangladesh um, and other parts of the world. But I think uh, certainly something I would like to think that we share is that we 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 look upon these as opportunities um, and use the law as a way to bring about change, whatever that change might be. Absolutely. And that's, uh, it, it's, I think that goes back to my first experiences of the law, which was in the LSE, where, where it was taught in, as a social science in the, in the political diplomatic context. And it, it, it's, you know, the, the law does not operate in a vacuum which is why it's so important that it doesn't derive its practitioners from a vacuum either. Um, and, uh, you know, the best lawyers, I think, do understand the context, the wider context in which they work. Absolutely. Now, one of the questions I have to ask you, um, purely because I, it interests interest me uh, immensely, and that and that's your your time at, at number 10. Um, now, during that time, obviously, you took a step back from your practice. But uh, I mean, how did you see your role there? And, and 
what would you say that you achieved during your, your time there? Actually, I'm not, I wouldn't agree that I took a step back from my practice, actually. I was very keen to establish that, um, you know, the, the spouse of the prime minister didn't have to be a 1950s housewife <laughs> uh, and actually could have an independent career there. And I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I was the first spouse of the prime minister to actually have a full-time uh, career that I kept going all, all that time. Um, but what I what it did do, of course, is open my eyes much more to the international um, side as well as the policy side. But I was already having done public law and employment law policy, and being active in the Labour Party policy was always something I was very well aware of. But the international side came much more to the fore, just because I was able to travel more in in Downing Street, meet more people, and understand a little bit more about how the international organizations in the world uh, work. Um, as far as my role is concerned, of course, um, as I often used to say when people said I was the first lady of Great Britain, that actually the first lady of Great Britain was the late Prince Philip. Uh, uh, and uh, there isn't a, a role as such for the prime minister's spouse, but there is obviously a platform and an opportunity I think it's up to the interest of the individual person how they use that. So in my case, um, I used it uh, to focus on those things which were consistent with government policy, but which I was particularly interested in, whether it was the consequences of the enactment of the Human Rights Act and the hum uh, putting a human rights lens on the business of government and local government, uh, uh, whether it was women's issues, which, uh, as you've already said, through my work as a discrimination lawyer, I've always been interested in. So I, I tended to focus on things that I knew about that I was already talking about and uh, and which uh, I was able to talk meaningfully about without <laughs> pretending that I had any political power. Because I firmly believe if you want political power and want to take uh, polit use political influence, you need to stand for parliament yourself. You don't do that because your partner happens to be someone who has uh, political power. Absolutely. The one thing I would say is, um, even during your time at number 10, uh, and that's when I first contacted you, <laughs> um, was uh, I, I had moved to Bosnia. I was doing a um, an unpaid internship. <laughs> and I wrote to see if you would help me being a human rights lawyer, not actually expecting the, you know, no the, reply. <laughs> the, the first, the first lady of 10 Downing Street to be actually replying. Um, <laughs> and actually, actually I got a reply two days after I wrote to you and you put me in contact with a foundation that then, that then assisted. Um, and I mean, that was one of the things that, that really did encourage me that, you know, you took the time to respond to somebody who you'd never met before. Um, to to assist in developing a career, and I think that's that's one of the the admirable qualities that you have is the the approachability that you've always had. Well, I do try and do that. I can't promise that I um, I can get people jobs in every area, but in relation, obviously, to the law and, and to the things that I know about, um, I'm always you know it, it, I'm so lucky myself. And people help me as I think, you know, I need to give it back as much as I can. And for, for ages, I, I would do mainly do that for, for young women, actually. But 
it came a point when I realized that uh, I need to do it for whoever needs the help, <laughs> whether they're male or female. <laughs> Sherry, we have one final question um, that we we ask everyone that we interview for this podcast, and it's not always an easy question to <laughs> answer. Um, so, what does accountability mean to you, um, and what do you think we should be doing better? I was thinking about this. Um, I think the first thing accountability means to me is transparency. Um, I think. You can't get accountability in whatever area we're talking about without there being uh, openness and transparency. Uh, and that in itself, uh, in itself keeps people uh, on the right path, but it also enables when things go wrong for them to be, de- it to be detected more easily. Um, I think accountability also means a lack of concentration of power. I'm not quite sure what the right word would be. Um, you know, you can't really have accountability if everything is consolidated into one person, one place, one system. Uh, different powers of influence that hold the others to account, I think, is really important. Obviously, I'd say that because one of those powers uh, would be the law and the way the law and the courts hold the other parts of our constitution to account is, is, is to me, very important. Um, and, of course, our courts also mainly, mostly conduct their business in public, which gives us the transparency as well. So I think we need both of those things if we're going to have true accountability. And, of course, I go back to what I said before about diversity accountability has to be diverse. It can't just be uniform because life is more complicated than that. <laughs> uh, what should we be doing better? We can do every, every single part of that can be done better. Uh, and we see it over time as things have developed. I mean, I go back to my husband's government introducing freedom of information, which I think he expressed some regrets about in his own um, uh, book, uh, uh, but we've seen that be built upon. Uh, we have seen the the idea of the separation of powers and holding to account, which came out. I mean, was already all, always there, always been part of our common law system, but it was made more obvious, I think, by first of all the Human Rights Act, and then that leading to the the need to uh, separate the Supreme Court. Uh, out of Parliament and into a separate building to embody that idea. And then we saw it, didn't we, in things like the um, Brexit uh, cases that went to our Supreme Court. Um, And I think those developments will continue. Uh, And by the more we do these things, hopefully the better it does uh, become. Uh, and as for diversity, well, we've already talked a little bit about that, haven't we? You know, we have to make sure that uh, the, we reflect the wide, broad range of experiences in life, in in opportunities, and that the opportunities uh, 
are not simply confined to a, a fortunate self-perpetuating group and we do need to do better on that still you know we just we've just seen haven't we the the whole uh, black lives matter movement and just the statistics about how disproportionately you know whether it's um length of uh, you know who who dies earlier uh, who gets the movement who who moves up socioeconomic groups that actually who has healthier lives uh who owns property in our country you, you know we still haven't got a proper diverse and equal society have we I think that's right. And I think you've uh, uh, focused on all of the points that are, are incredibly important that, that we, we do need to be doing a lot better. But we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much, by the way. We have to remember how far we've, we've come. And I'm an eternal optimist and I always believe the glass is half full. And looking back over, over my 40-odd years at, at, at the bar and in the law and in public life, I do think we have seen generally an upward trajectory and the most important thing we need to ensure now is that continues and we don't see some of those gains we've made over these years going backwards now whether uh, because of the pandemic or or because of the increasing inequalities we're seeing in our society. I think that's a very fair point to, to make. Um, and I think that's a, a perfect point to end on. Um, obviously, we do need to do more, but we have come a very long way. Shri, I'd like to thank you very much for spending the time with us for the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Thank you, Toby. You see, I was so right to reply to you all those years ago, wasn't I? <laughs> Who knew that we would become such friends? <laughs> I know. It's, it, it was truly an email that I was meant to send. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's, it's made a, a huge difference to my career as well. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. Cherie took us on a personal journey of seeing accountability through the lens of diversity. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can follow us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. Next week, we'll be looking at a novel approach to accountability. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.